So we've been doing this thing where we're going through uh, the, the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, uh, chapters 2 and 3. Uh, we are on the letter to the church in Thyatira, Revelation 2, starting at, at verse 18. Um, so before we get into this, we need to talk about the Bible. Uh, we need to talk about what it is, because I think it's important. Um, and I just decided to do this this morning, so forgive me if I'm a little all over the place. Uh, but the Bible is a wonderfully complex, beautifully put together, um, beautifully expertly written, compiled library of all sorts of things. Uh, and it's, it's just a, a book of awesome, okay? And uh, so because it's so complex, I mean, there's all sorts of different uh, genres in it. We've got narratives, we've got myth, we've got um, we've got letters, we've got gospel, we've got poems, we've got all sorts of things. So it's a wonderfully complex uh, library of goodness that is put together uh, by human beings with uh, the Spirit of God all mixed in there, and it is totally awesome. And because it's so wonderfully complex, uh, we might think of the Bible as a, really, and it's, it's an adult book. We invite kids into it because we want them to learn the stories and poetry and all that kind of stuff because uh, it communicates uh, the very heart of God to us. But one of the things that we, can't, we cannot say about the Bible is that we just read it and take it literally because uh, there's all sorts of different symbols and metaphors that uh, we find in here. This, this letter that we'll read here uh, will be an example of one of those things. Now, there are some things that we take literally, like love your neighbor as yourself, right? We take that very literally. However, the way in which you live that out is a whole nother matter. It's a whole different matter, and that is difficult. To, to learn how to love your neighbor as yourself uh, that takes things like wisdom. That takes things like relying on uh, the presence of the Spirit, uh, who is the one that we worship. And so how you live that out becomes wonderfully complex, just as the Bible is. So does that make sense? So as we read this thing, we're going we're gonna to talk about some of that, uh, and I think it's going to be fun. But before we do, you'll find the words behind me on the screen. So, Revelation 2, 18 through 27, 28, 29. Um, you'll find it on the screen behind me, in front of you, if you've got it with you. Before we do that, let's pray together. God, we are so grateful uh, to be in this space, to, to take a moment and listen to your word. Which we recognize as transformative and generative. It creates it changes us as we enter into it and, and listen to you and depend on your spirit in order to, to figure out how best to live in this world. So we pray that you would speak to us this morning, that we would hear your word, that we would feel your presence. Open us. Help us listen. In Jesus' name, amen. To the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet 
are like burnished bronze. Does Jesus have eyes that shoot fire out of them? It would look really cool in a Marvel movie, for sure. But this is metaphor, right? We're not talking literal eyes of fire. We all get that, which is great. I know your deeds, Jesus says, your love, your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did at first. So Jesus is like, there's some really good things. And you've grown. You're now doing more than you did before. And I love it. And it's fantastic. Nevertheless, he says, there's more room for growth. There's more room for change. There's more room for doing things differently. I have this against you, he says. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. Was there really a woman named Jezebel? Maybe. Could be. Possibly. Could be a whole community of people that Jesus is just referring to as Jezebel. We don't know for sure. And that's okay. You tolerate that woman Jezebel. We'll get into that later. Who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent of her immorality, but she's unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering. I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Like, are we talking literally here? Or are we talking the people who follow her ways will somehow experience some sort of death inside and it's just going to be what happens if you continue to follow? It's probably it. Then all the churches will know that I am the one who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. What you do, how you live, has consequences. It will happen. Now, I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep secrets, I will not impose any more burden on you except to hold on to what you have until I come. To the one who is victorious, to the one who overcomes and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. That one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my Father, I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So you see what I mean? There's all sorts of things in there that we could take literally, or we could just think about it more broadly which sort of opens up all sorts of really neat stuff, really cool stuff. But first, I want to talk to you about the five-second rule. You know what the five-second rule is? You all know what the five-second rule is. It's that thing. We use it in our house every once in a while. It's like a thing that we do. I use it personally every once in a while. You know, you know how it goes, right? In the five-second rule, you, you drop something on the ground. Let's say you're eating dinner together, and you drop something on the ground, and you announce to the whole room, because this is something you have to announce. You have to let everyone know that you're now invoking the five-second rule so everyone can, in their heads, click down. Five, four, three. And you've got five seconds to pick that piece of food up off the ground, and you can eat it, and you're good, right? Five-second rule. It's fantastic. It's really good. Only all of us in this room, because we have an ounce of common sense, 
we all know that's not true, right? And on top of it, there were some studies done at Clemson University and a little bit afterwards in England. They actually studied the five-second rule to see if it was actually something that worked, right? They used all sorts of surfaces, all sorts of different kinds of food, and what they found out that if you drop something on the floor on a contaminated surface filled with germs, it doesn't matter how fast you pick it up, it gets contaminated. How many of us have pets? Do we have pets that live in our houses? We know what they do on the floor. They rub all sorts of different things on the floor. Like you've seen it happen, right? And you're not home all the time, so you don't know where they're doing that stuff. Could be right there next to your chair. You don't know. So we know. Here's what they found out when they did these studies. Even if you drop something on the floor for a second, it gets infected with things like E. coli, salmonella, and other all sorts of really gross, nasty things. So we know, because we have common sense, the five-second rule is uh uh-uh. So the lesson here is when you drop something on the floor, you got to think to yourself, what do you value the most? That extra beat of scrumptious, right? That extra yummy, or your health? Which is more important to you? What do you value the most? We'll come back to that later. First, Jesus is speaking to the angel of the church in Thyatira, right? We'll stop right there. By now you know the drill. We've got a place, Thyatira. It's important for us when we come up to these places for us to think to ourselves, is there anything we might know about Thyatira back in first century that might help us as we begin to sort of discern what this letter might mean to them and also what this letter might mean to us here today. What's it all about? So we're going to take a look. We're going to take a sneak peek, maybe pull back the curtain and look and maybe figure out what was it like in Thyatira uh, back then. And I'll be honest with you up front, out of all the cities in Asia Minor that we learn about through these seven letters to the seven churches, this Thyatira is the one that we know the least about. So this is what we think we know because of historical evidence, because of archaeology, because of all that stuff, because really smart people have done the really hard work at trying to figure this out, but they still say, eh, we're not for sure, but here's what we're pretty sure about. Here's what we think we know. So Thyatira was apparently known for its, uh, its numerous trade guilds, its numerous sort of trade associations. So there were all sorts of kind, all sorts of people making all sorts of things that people could buy and sell, things that we need in normal everyday life. So in Thyatira, you have people who worked and wool spun, who made clothes, who spun yarn. Uh, You had people who dyed those clothes. There are examples in other parts of uh, the Bible. Lydia, for example, who who dealt in purple cloth, and she was apparently very wealthy because of it funded a whole church, a whole movement. It's fantastic. Look up Lydia in the Bible and see if you can read that story. So apparently in Thyatira, you had leather workers, uh, you had potters, bakers, you had slave dealers, you had bronze smiths. So you're talking about lots and lots of people who work with their hands, uh, who make things, who create things. We're talking about hardworking, blue-collar people. Uh, working hard to make money and to put food on the table for their families. So we also know in Thyatira that they were also influenced by many of the same 
practices and religious ideas that we talked about last week. So there are all sorts of different gods and goddesses. We talked about them last week that you do. You're involved in all sorts of different rites and rituals in order, hopefully, to get the gods and goddesses to do for you, to meet your needs, right? So last week, we talked about uh, the goddess Athena, the god of wisdom and war and taking things by force. We talked about Asclepius, the god of healing. You would go to the temple. You would learn how to get healed. After you were healed, you would you would have a sculpture made of that body part, and you would give that back to Asclepius. We talked about Demeter, the god of groceries, the god of grain who makes things come from the ground so you can feed your family, the god Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. This is how you be fruitful in life. Right, but here's the thing. In Thyatira had all these trade associations, and they were integrated into the religious life of the community. So much so that business practices were now intermingled or sort of intimately connected business practice with religious practice. So in order to get a license to do business in Thyatira, you would sign on to be part of these trade associations that would be intimately connected with the, with the worship of a particular god or goddess. Isn't that fascinating. So it would have felt a little bit like this. You go to the Ames Chamber of Commerce, right? And it's an event. Or let's say you're in Thyatira. So you go to Thyatira Chamber, Chamber of Commerce. The, the leader comes uh, and says to you, today, hi everybody, welcome. Today, we're going to have a worship ceremony uh, for Athena, and everyone would know that that's the goddess of war and violence and taking things by force. And as we practice these things, we get better at what we practice. Hopefully, this will help us learn a few things about how do we take things by force in order to help our business grow, right? Because you become what you worship. Or uh, here's another thing. Uh, hi, everybody. Today, we're going to have a Dionysus party. So we're going to learn about, we're going to, have, we're going to drink a lot of wine, we're going to get cozy with people, we're going to learn how to use other people so that our needs can be satisfied. We've got certain practices where that makes that happen, and hopefully we'll learn how to do that in our businesses and they will, they will become fruitful and our business needs will be met. Imagine that. Imagine going to a chamber of commerce meeting and that's what you're involved in. It would become very uncomfortable. So you imagine as an early follower of Jesus in, in the city of Thyatira, imagine how uncomfortable you would be. Imagine the pressure you would be under. You begin to think to yourself, this is really weird. I don't, I don't know if this fits with what I believe, with, with who I am, with with who I, I believe I'm supposed to be. Here's an interesting thing. Peter wrote some letters. You can, it's called First and Second Peter, creatively named. We're so good at that. First and Second Peter. Do you know who he's writing to? He's writing to people, the, the diaspora, all in Asia Minor. So he's writing to some of these very same people. And he says to them, he calls them aliens and strangers in the world. 
fit perfectly. These people in Thyatira with these trade associations would be feeling like aliens and strangers in the world. So as an early follower of Jesus, living in a world in a place like that, what do you do? What do you do? You have to be a part of these trade associations because you have to do business, because you have to make money, because you got a family and they need food. We have to provide for our family. So being a part of these trade associations means that you have to be a part of these odd rituals of worshiping other gods. How do you respond? What do you do? Well, apparently there was, there was someone in the church in Thyatira who had the answer. A woman Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Again, we don't know if this was, this was a woman. Uh, we don't know. This is a symbol. This is a metaphor Jesus is using. So we don't know if this is a woman who's teaching this. We don't know if it's a, if it's a guy who's teaching this. We don't know if this is a group of people who've decided this is the way. We just have this woman who Jesus refers to as Jezebel. Nevertheless, I have this against you. You tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality. So we got the Dionysus party backdrop behind all of that. The, The eating of food sacrificed to idols. I've given her time to repent. She knows. They know. that This isn't the kind of life I've called them to live. They know I've given them, her, time to repent. But they're unwilling. She's unwilling. So why does Jesus call her Jezebel? Why do we have that name? It's an Old Testament reference. Right? So in the Old Testament, Jezebel was the daughter of the, one of the kings of Israel's enemies. Jezebel married King Ahab, king of Israel. Now, she was a committed worshiper of Baal the rain god or the god of nature. And she quickly became uh, influential. And she essentially enticed, taught, got the Israelites to sort of worship the rain god, the nature god, Baal, alongside of worshiping the god of Israel. Basically saying, well, these are gods, we can't see them. Right? So I know a lot about the nature God, the rain God, about His ways. And I know now about the God of Israel. So you, you worship them both. you got to have your bases covered. Right? So there was this woman in Thyatira whom Jesus refers to as Jezebel, or it's a group of people that Jesus refers to as Jezebel, essentially teaching what we might think of as as compromise. It's okay. It's, it's okay. Kind of like the Nicolaitans we talked about last week. It's okay. You can go to these trade associations. You can participate in the cultic practices of other gods. It's fine. It's no big deal. Really. You can sort of leave your faith in Jesus at the door. Do the thing you do at these trade association chamber of commerce meetings. Then pick your faith in Jesus up at the door as you walk out. It's not really a big deal. Also, don't you think the ways of Athena are sort of enticing, appealing? Like, 
you, you learn to take things by force. You learn to do, do life, do business that way. Your business is going to prosper. See, we learn things like this all the time. We just, we're just too sophisticated to call them the ways of other gods. Like We don't use that sort of language, but we use these sorts of things. We go to meetings where we learn these types of things. It's okay to learn to take things by force. It's effective. You get what you need and your business grows and it's fantastic for you. Or aren't the ways of Dionysus great? Like you, you drink wine and you cozy up to people and you learn to use other people to meet your own needs. You learn to manipulate other people so that you and your business can get what you need so that it will grow as quickly as possible and it will be more profitable for you. Right? Besides, you've got needs, you've got desires, it's all good. Also, Jesus is about what? Jesus is about grace and mercy and forgiveness and acceptance. So it's fine. Like, you'll be forgiven for it. It's all good. So this Jezebel, this group of people, is causing these early followers of Jesus to sort of mix things up to compromise who they know they are called to be. Their faith in Jesus. And I think, I think this affects us because we rub up against this all the time. And it affects us in, in a couple of ways. First, thinking this way, living in this way, sort of causes us to compartmentalize our lives. So we've got, we've got ways in which we behave in different compartments in our lives. We've got the religious compartment that we all enter into when we come here. We all believe the same things. We all, we all think the same things about God and how we ought to live in the world. And so we act one way here. And then we go to work and we understand that, there, well, this is at work. So there are different ways I have to do things in order to, you know, I got to do these things because it works. And I've been told that I have to. And my boss says this. And there are things that we, there are different ways that we act in school because we want to we want to hang out with the people that we want to hang out with, the different ways we act at home, right? All of these things, we, we act in different ways in all these different spheres. And we all, it almost feels like we have to be a different person in these different places where we find ourselves. And it doesn't take us very long to figure out that that gives us a sense of restlessness inside. There's like this, this deep sense of anxiety, sort of just below the surface of our lives because we don't know who we really are. And oftentimes the way we live in one sphere will sort of, one compartment will sort of make its way into another one. Like if we feel like we have to be a ruthless dictator at work, and that's the way we are for eight hours a day at work, inevitably you bring that home and we wind up hurting the ones we love the most. You know what Jesus says? Jesus says it doesn't have to be that way. He's like, I'm the one whose feet are like burnished bronze. Like a statue. I'm the one in the center of your life and I do not move. I'm in the center of your life. I am with you. I've got feet like burnished bronze and I am with you wherever 
you go. Later on, he says, hold on to what, you've ha- what you have. Hold on to what you've been given. In other words, Jesus says, you've been given grace. So be gracious. I'm the one in the center of your life. Learn from me. Live out of that. You've been given grace. Be gracious. Jesus says, in spite of what you've done, I still love you. I still love you. Be a loving person. In spite of all the mess you've made of things, you've been forgiven. So be a forgiving person. I've given you everything you need. I've been very generous to you. You have more than enough. Be generous in all you do. And look, it's not like we have to walk around and just be super religious people. Jesus just wants us formed in Jesus' image to be forgiving, gracious, loving, generous people. Because here's the reality. We don't have compartments in our lives. We don't. There's just life. That's it. It's just life. And Jesus is the one with feet like burnished bronze standing in the middle of it. Hold on to that. Hold on to that wherever you are, wherever you go, whenever you are there. So there's this Jezebel teaching the early followers of Jesus in Thyatira to, it's fine. You can do these things. You can go along to get along. You'll be forgiven. It's fine. Right? We compartmentalize our lives and we act one way here and another way over there. And it also does this. It causes us to, to make decisions based on what's prudent based on what we want, based on what we think will enhance our lives, our place, our status, our fruitfulness at work, wherever it is we are. We base our decisions based on that instead of what we value the most, which is Jesus, which is his way, which is his way of life in this world. So back to the five-second rule. If you drop a cookie on the floor... Are you more likely to pick that up and pop it in your mouth than if it was a piece of broccoli? Or if you drop a piece of chocolate on the floor? Are you more likely to pick that up than if it was a piece of asparagus? By the way, I love asparagus. It's my favorite vegetable. So I might pick up the asparagus because the way we make it is kind of awesome. It gets crispy put garlic on it. Anyway, we can talk about that later. Asparagus is good. Plus, you get the treat later when you, it smells. The, oh, it's so fun. You're like, oh yeah, I had asparagus. Terrible. So if it's a piece of chocolate, you're more likely to pick that up. Who says we can't have fun? We gotta have fun. You're, you're more likely to pick up chocolate. Right? Because it's like, oh, I want that. So we base our decisions based on what we want, based on what's prudent, based on what's immediate. Like, oh, that's so, like sugar. Instead of based on what we value. 
the most. So the decisions that we're confronted with come at us, and they're not just random. We think they are. Each choice is important, and we've all heard this. We know this. None of this is new. Let's just be upfront about that, too, because most of us had parents who taught us pretty well. We base decisions based on what we value, not on just what we want, what's prudent, what's, what we like, what, what is immediate. Sometimes we think about those, the consequences of decisions, and sometimes we don't. We think it's no big deal. We think, well, if I just lie about this product I'm selling, right, they're more likely to, to buy it. It's, it's not a big deal. It's just quick, five seconds, no big deal. Right? Or I can overinflate my services because they're more likely to go with me rather than, rather than the competition, and I'll deal with the fallout later. Not a big deal. If I just close this deal right now, it'll be good for me. Right? Or if I disparage the competition, you know, tell them all sorts of bad things and tell rumors and disparage them, they're more likely to go with me rather than the competition. I'll deal with the consequences later as long as I get them on my side. Five seconds, no big deal. It's just quick. Right? But here's the deal. We know what consequences are. We know what happens. Right? We know it. We, begin, we die a little on the inside, even if we don't feel it. And the, the consequences of all sorts of decisions like that, we've seen the fruit of them. We've seen addictions and broken marriages and destroyed relationships. Those, all of those things are evidence of what we happen when we base our decisions on those other things rather than what we, what we value the most. Jesus is saying, I've got feet like burnished bronze. I'm in the middle of your life Base your decisions on what you value the most. My presence, my ways, my way of life, the things that I've taught you, the things that I've shown you, hold on to what you've been given, the things that I've given you, hold on to that. Jesus has eyes that blaze like fire. It would be cool as all get out if Jesus literally had eyes that blaze like fire. It would make for a great movie sees through it all, sees through it all, sees through the compromise, knows it, watches it, feet like burnished bronze, the one who stands in the middle of it, experiences it alongside of us. He's, in, he's the one in the middle, inviting us, prompting us, urging us, encouraging us not to live in the world as it is, just because, well, that's the way it is. I got to do what I got to do to get ahead and to get along and to make my way in this world. No, he's in the middle of our lives, inviting us, prompting us, urging us, encouraging us to, to work with him in making the world what God wants the world to be. A place of grace, a place of love, a place of healing, a place of forgiveness, a place of generosity. Look, we live in a world with all sorts of pressures coming at us from all sorts of different, different angles, pressuring us to, don't worry about that now. Don't worry about what Jesus taught you. You've got to go along to get along. Pressuring us to be someone we're, we're not, pressuring us to be someone we know we haven't been called to be. And Jesus says, I know, I see it, I get it, I know it's hard. 
I've seen it. I've seen your service. I've seen your perseverance. I've seen that you've grown. I know you're doing more than you were before. Nevertheless, I have this against you. There's more work to do. So hold on to what you have. Hold on to what you've been given. Because to the one who does my will to the end, to the one who continues to follow in my ways, Till the end, in spite of the pressures of the outside, I will give the morning star. What is that? The morning star? The sun? Sun? We get the sun? The morning star. The presence of the one who shines brighter than anyone else ever has. The presence of Jesus who shows us exactly who God is and who shows us exactly what it means to be a true, authentic, beautiful human being. I will give that presence. The presence of Jesus will be with you wherever you go, whenever you are there. Jesus says, hold on. I know it's hard. I'm with you. You can do it. I got your back. We'll do it together. Let's pray.